Hi, and welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit podcast. I'm Chris O'Fault, the editor of The Toolkit. Arrival screenwriter Eric Heiserher was hardly alone in his love of Ted Shang's The Story of Your Life, but he was the only one who thought the short story could be made into a movie. The story of Louise, who in the movie is played by Amy Adams, a linguistics professor struggling to communicate with recently arrived aliens, interweaved with scenes of her raising a sick child, lacked a dramatic conflict in the short story that would be needed to propel a feature film. Meanwhile, the fascinating world of linguistics that Chang's books explores hardly reads as visual or cinematic if you read the short story. One of the reasons I really wanted to have Eric on is Arrival really is a textbook lesson in adaptation. The way he finds ways to externalize and visualize what are essentially internal and intellectual concepts best suited for prose. I sat down with Eric back in October when we were both guests at the Savannah Film Festival. One note that I really want to make before we get started, the last six minutes of our conversation deal with some details of the script that could be considered um, spoilers. Uh, and it was a necessary part of the conversation because the restructuring of the short story, uh, a large part of it revolves around when and how viewers uh, learned key information. I made a mo- note of this at the time. It's a little after the 25 minute mark, so you can turn off your podcast, turn off the podcast then. Okay, here's my conversation with Eric. I really hope you enjoy. Well, I got first inspired to, to start screenwriting after an experience, uh, one of my first real jobs out of high school, I worked for Space Industries in Houston, like uh, Clear Lake, uh, they're associated with NASA, and I was the, the kid, I was the only kid that didn't have multiple PhDs <laughs> around these astrophysicists and these nuclear scientists, um, and we were all designing, uh, or they were designing, um, Technology for the astronauts to use on spacewalks and, and re- repair the shuttle, and I was the young and um, sparkly graphic designer trying my best to make them look good on the page. Uh, and what came out of that really was the parties that they'd have afterward to celebrate the fact that uh, you know they got a proposal through. Uh, I wasn't even old enough to drink at that point, so there was always some ginger ale at the party for me, and there was booze for everybody else. And after a couple of hours, a completely wasted group of uh, astrophysicists are the most entertaining ever. And they just start to walk through any number of uh, apocalyptic scenarios and how they'd solve them, <laughs> and uh, uh, including zombies. <laughs> uh, and someone would go. Some would go into plenty of uh, examples of how close we've already come to several apocalyptic scenarios, mm-hmm. which was not good for my young brain. You know, that kept me up at night. Uh, and the best part would be their, their solutions, especially like the, uh, the, the drunken scientist who told me that, you know, if we ever had an asteroid hurtling towards us, you wouldn't use a nuke. You'd just have to paint it white and the sun does the rest. And I, and I was like, wait, what, what, what? Go back. Tell me that. What, what, what do you mean? <laughs> um, and all those stories just nested in my brain. And I finally um, realized that the, the best output for them would be to explore, with the, explore them on, on a screenplay format. Mm-hmm. And your first screenplay um, that got bought, that was, it kind of came into the public consciousness in an interesting way, right? Isn't it did. I mean, I had a couple of things optioned early on, but the first sale that really broke me into the business was uh, based on, it was the only horror script that I'd ever written, and it was based on source material that I created myself. It was a website called the Dianea House, and uh, some, some amazing 
audience member in Savannah was even aware of it. So that was a, that was a deep cut from somebody that I met earlier today. Yeah, and that's, that's quite a story. So the website was something that caught prominence or caught attention, is that? It did, it went viral in a, in a way that um, I hadn't expected. Back when going viral was a brand new concept, you know, this was 2004. Mm -hmm. And uh, it blew up and I found myself on Snopes.com and I never expected to be there for any reason whatsoever. Uh, and, uh, and, a, and a few other uh, places that, uh, that really delved into either hoaxes. I wasn't even writing a hoax, I was just writing a story that included me as a character. You know, I had a copyright statement at the bottom of every page, and yet so many people bought it as gospel truth. Um, to the point where I was being sent, uh, you know, photos of other houses around the country and asking me, like a subject matter expert, is this one of the houses? Should I be worried? I haven't seen somebody come out of it in a while. And I'm like, okay, calm down. <laughs> um, and one last kind of uh, background question. My other understanding is, 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 is as a child, you traveled quite a bit and your father had an interesting job, is that? Yes. My father was ancient history professor at OU for 30 years. Um, and he went on sabbatical to Europe several times uh, in my youth, and I was his plucky assistant. Uh, so I got to see a number of amazing foreign locales from you know, Italy to Spain, and Germany, Greece, Turkey, and, uh, and all of these places would have been great to visit as an adult, but I was just a, um, a fussy little kid at the time, you know? I was a, I was a precocious 12-year-old who wound up seeing the backs of museums, and I was holding pressing paper on inscriptions for my father as he, like, worked on some translation. And, uh, and I always said that he was the boring half of Indiana Jones. <laughs> oh, it's the boring half of Indiana Jones. So there's not, there's not an exploring story there. So. No, no, but to this day, he is one of like three world experts on Alexander the Great. And so people from various dig sites around the world would sometimes send him photographs or copies of pieces and, and ask him to help uh, authenticate them. You seem to have a knack for taking um, stories that weren't written for the screen and taking them to the screen, lights out, and now arrival. I, I'm, I'm wondering, is there, that's a very difficult thing to do, to translate something into, um, into cinematic terms, into a story that's gonna work on screen versus the kind of internal aspects of a, of a story. Um, is that something that just kind of comes natural to you? Is there something, is it, is it is about being drawn to the source material? Is there something about seeing it differently? I have to be drawn to the source material. I really have to have a, an emotional connection to it because my job as the adapter, in my opinion, is just to capture the way a piece of source material makes you feel mm -hmm. and make sure that that carries the, all the way to the final film. That it may look very different from the short story or the short film or wherever it began, but as long as it makes the reader or the viewer feel that same way, then I think I've done my job. And so what was it about Arrival in that short story? That, it, that... it was sobbing at the end of the story. <laughs> you know, it was the, I was just completely emotionally wrecked and uplifted at the same time. Ted Shane did this magic trick. He lured me in with, you know, Fermat's principle of least time, the superior warp hypothesis, and, you know, linguistic relativity and all these amazing things. And... Then he delivered this huge punch to me at the end that made me realize that I had had a, an emotional connection to the characters. Um, 
he's, he's very good about that. He, he's very good at the synthesis of those two things. So you have the, the brain and the heart as, um, as parts of the story. I guess the thing is, is that I think that experience that you had reading the short story, I think a lot of people loved the story and had, a, had, a, had an impact on it. Yeah. But you seem to be the rarity of the person that was able to say, I, I, can, I can see how to put this into a movie. I think for a while, a lot of people didn't think that this was something. This is, this is true. <laughs> so what, but what, what was that? Is that something, I, I guess what I'm really curious about is, is that, are you working backwards from that emotional experience you had and thinking back in terms of like how can I translate something like this into a, 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 um, a screenplay form or is it something that is just much more instinctual? I think it's instinctual at the start for me but instinct only gets me so far I can get you know I can get part way down the field with that mm -hmm. and then I need uh, pragmatism and practice and habit and all of that to kick in and reworking things, trial and error. There's a lot of R&D in the middle of the development of this thing, for sure. Uh, and that's because the story really didn't lend itself to a, an easy cinematic adaptation. You, you couldn't read the story and say, oh, I see the movie in my head. Mm -hmm. And part of that was just some of the decisions that Ted made that made perfect sense in a literary conceit, but then didn't make sense as a movie. So you didn't see a movie in your head? You just wanted to make a movie? Of it? I just wanted to make the movie. I yeah. wanted to make uh, the movie that made me feel like that. Okay. And so what was, I mean, I want to get into all the research you did because that clearly is a big part of like taking the, the, the linguist part of it, but it's a, we'll definitely get into that. But in kind, of, in kind of like broader terms, what was like the biggest obstacle in terms of breaking this into something that could work on, on screen? Is it, is it the fact that there's, you have to add a conflict, that you have to create a, a job? Yeah, making it a dramatic narrative is probably the, the biggest obstacle because one didn't need to exist in the, in the short story. It wasn't there. And here we were adding a new element. It's like you know, grafting a new appendage onto somebody. You worry that like, you know, is, the, is the story going to reject the, the new organ? <laughs> you know, is it, it feels like you're forcing something on. You're forcing right. a drop. I, yeah. I was worried about all of that. Um, and then once you have it there, then you have to make sure that it, it integrates and synthesizes with the rest of the story in, in, in the proper way. And thankfully, this idea of an actual first contact mm -hmm. and the way that you know the global powers responded to them turned out to be very similar to the the, the craziness that we're seeing just about our you know our current political climate. And um, you know you there are there are going to be pers personalities who are always um, suspicious and even paranoid of aliens illegal or otherwise is that something I mean the parallels I mean I, I saw this a month ago and you know with what's going on in this country it was like my mind instantly yeah. you know it's, it's hard not to go there and obviously uh, you know mr. Trump wasn't around when you were doing this a few years ago I mean no. it's around but not not in this this context but that idea of something like that that could happen uh, uh, um, the idea of this kind of fear of the other is something that was still in the water that you right. were kind of drawing upon. It just wasn't on the surface as much as it is right. now. Totally. And the big obstacle that we had, we wrestled with, and I think the movie still wrestles with is um, what's the trope of this kind of story? You know, what's what's the cliche, and then what is being authentic to the narrative? 
uh, and sometimes you had to lean into the trope a bit and embrace the fact that there are you know there are going to be some people that just see the uh, the the cynical side of things and uh, and or that they get in their head too much and it spins them out to a course of action that's not going to be good for anybody. And I have to ask, um, my understanding is amongst the many people who didn't see this as a movie, it was, was the author, Ted Chiang. Yeah. Um, and my understanding is, is that, he, that you convinced him in, I don't know, a, a pitch? I don't but It was an hour-long pitch over the phone, yeah. And what was, I mean, okay, so you can't go into everything, but what's, what was kind of like, at that point, had you already broken it? Had you kind of already figured out how to do it, or or was it? We had we, what we what we had done. I had found a set of producers. Sorry, I say we. You say we because there. Was I say I say we because we. I, I had two producers who had come on board with me at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, Dan Levine and Dan Cohen, and they were at Twenty One Laps, mm-hmm. and their company had not done anything like this before. Mm-hmm. And as a writer, I had not adapted anything like this before. So we were. Uh, part of this great experiment that we sort of committed ourselves to mm-hmm. and they got what was called a shopping agreement from Ted which is is really kind of nothing it's like 90 days we'd like to be able to see if we can set this up somewhere um, I didn't even need to talk to Ted at that point in time we ran out with that and went to all the studios and pitched my my I take on how to make this a film and and every studio said no they, they turned us away so uh, usually that's where it ends because you've gone to everybody who might buy it and they've said no so you walk away and this isn't a project that you can make independently this is this is the scale of this one is too you need a studio you'd think you'd think mm-hmm. and yet we did make it independently and then we just got acquired oh, by a okay. studio later oh so that that was uh, that was uh, because we had a few uh, independent financiers of, with Film Nation and Lava Bear that oh, kind okay. of they Voltron together to make it work okay <laughs> So at that point, you have this idea of the kind of the world adding a, a, a layer of conflict here and yes. the fear of the other. Um, but another key to this, and I, I think it's really one of the most remarkable things about this adaptation in your screenplay, is what you did with linguistics. Not, was that the right word? Ling- linguistics. Linguistics. Yeah. I mean, in reading the short story, it's fast. I, I, I instantly became interested in this world. But it's a lot of exposition. Sure. It's a lot of internal. Yeah. And that ability to turn it into something external, to turn it into almost a physical action that plays um, into um, a conflict, is something that becomes a physical action that you um, that plays in part of the contact. It kind of externalizes, you know, with the Amy Adams character and trying to yeah. go up against it. Um, that was really remarkable because in a lot of ways you didn't short shift a lot of that great information and a lot of appreciation that we gained from um, from this art of language. And I, I'm just curious, I, I don't, I'm still not 100%, I've only seen it once, I'm still not even 100% sure how you did it. <laughs> um, uh, but what what was that process like? I know there was a lot of research. Is part of this just ingraining yourself into this world and becoming an expert in it and, and figuring out from yeah. the inside out? It is. And, and it's building a lot of scenes to see how it helps the overall architecture of the story. I had plenty of material in there that ultimately we didn't need, mm-hmm. but uh, for many, many drafts we had you know, more interactions between Louise and the heptapods, more interactions between uh, Louise and Jeremy Renner's character, uh, Ian, 
and his side of things and the, the mathematical breakthroughs and the setbacks that he had in trying to communicate with them. Um, and we had more scenes with uh, Louisa and her daughter, Hannah, that helped inform the context of some of the other scenes in the movie. But all of that, and a lot of it got shot, by the way. You know, Denis went out and, and made a beautiful movie with, with all those extras, and I think it was like a three-hour movie at that point. And, and he did not want that. Like, he's, he's very deliberate in all of his choices. Um, well, how big was the shooting script <clears throat> along with it? The uh, shooting script was 121 pages. Okay. Um, so uh, so I, he, didn't, he didn't really veer from that. It was just that we ended up with a lot of material in terms of how it timed out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and three hours is a bit of an exaggeration, but I'm just saying that we, we had more to go with. And I think the best part of the evolution of this film was the sort of game of narrative Jenga that Denis played at the end by pulling out little bits and pieces and seeing how many things you could uh, remove and still have it be an elegant piece of story. You mean in the po- in post, in post. And, and, and pulling out? In editorial, how, yeah. And in the sense that like scenes are connecting that weren't meant to connect because there was something in between? Is that what it, it... Yeah, he had to find what was the cartilage that kind of made all of that work. You know, and if we lifted one scene, what, are, what, what do we damage? Was it a load-bearing wall or mm-hmm. what else do we need to move around or minimize? I think one of the things that could be the death of something like this is exposition. And yeah. yet, at the same time, it's, I, it's what's so fascinating about this. And so what was kind of that trick of all this interesting information, all this kind of learning that we do about linguistics and turning it into something where we're not just having it explained, but having it be something that's integral to the drama of the scenes and, and the, the action. The trick that I learned from a, a friend of mine named John Rogers, he's a, a feature and TV writer, um, John has always been good about nesting exposition or framing it as an argument. And so if you have some sort of debate that, that happens among the characters, and each of them is trying to defend their point by explaining why they think they're right, you're still explaining things, mm-hmm. but it's under the context uh, that I, just, I think it makes it more digestible. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, I think, is why the scene in which, there's a scene in which Louise diagrams a sentence and defends why it's important for her to teach her the way that she is. We learn a lot about language in general through that, that moment that we wouldn't otherwise. So in the sense, Amy Adams' character is, 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 is constantly trying to do something specific. She has a specific goal with it. Yes. And, and having to defend that or having to get over some, some counter-argument. Totally. You, end up, you kind of end up explaining it in, in, the, in the dialogue that way. But yeah. it, it's like action that comes out in drama. Is that kind of and, what... and, and out of a need. The, the need isn't, I need to teach the audience this. The need is, I need to defend my, my own ideas. My, I need to defend my, my way of working or my purpose. Mm-hmm. And what about um, the alien language? Yes. That, I'm having trouble remembering exactly how that was in the book, but the way that you were able to, I mean, I can imagine that's something that's also very hard to conceive of, like how this is going to read on the yeah. screen or how am I going to get an audience to, to do he, it. And, and the publicist did, did send me... Uh, 
I guess final draft couldn't quite fit some of the things. Some of the, oh yes, some you learned the, that. Yes. Some of the words, like actually into some of the symbols and the and the, and the logograms, right? Uh, yeah, Ted didn't do me any favors in in that. The source material was uh, pretty anemic when it came to the description of Heptapod B of the written language, mm-hmm. um, and it had already started to evolve by the time I sat down to write the script. And every time I sat down to try and write the the specific part of the screenplay that delved into the look of the written language of the aliens, I was never satisfied. I kept getting frustrated. I remember I was out with my, for dinner with my wife at one point, and, and I was complaining and moaning again, like usual, about, like, I can't get this to work. And she says, well, what do you see? Like, show me what it is that you see when, you, when, you, when you're talking about these, th- these logograms, these alien symbols. And I drew something out for her. And I said, it's going it's to look like, like, like this. And she says, well, then just put that in there. And I thought, that's a great idea until I found out that no screenwriting software really allows you to import graphics. And so I then had to make more work for myself by putting a bunch of blank space mm-hmm. in a script. And then when I converted it to PDF, I moved something in. I moved the graphic in and imported it manually every time I sent out a draft. I did that. I did that a hundred times. But you kind of created some of the language, did you not? I did. You did. It was circular mm-hmm. in, in nature and had various hooks and barbs. It was to, to get the idea that that's nonlinear, mm-hmm. nonlinear orthography. Now, of course, once we had a visual design crew come on board, it's beautiful. and Jessica Kuhn, who was our linguist uh, uh, consultant, uh, expert, uh, amazing woman in her own right, uh, all of those helped inform the final look of it. And uh, so it's a deviation from my early scrawlings. It's funny, I never even thought of that, but it's really true. The visualization of that language is so key to it working on screen, not it is. not just some of the logic of the language. Yeah. I never even thought of that. That's and it's the only script that I've ever written where I have images like that very specific it nested into the script. Uh, there's a scene that we didn't need uh, at the end of it, but uh, it was a confrontation where Weber realizes that uh, Louise's brain is being rewired because she signs something and she signs her name in a circle and I have that in the script as well. One thing that I really responded to with this movie and I'm hardly the first person to point this out but um, you know for an alien story um, this is grounded in, in such realism even that field and and the way this is all playing out it doesn't it doesn't feel like I'm in some like alternate universe sci-fi thing it, it feels it feels very grounded and part of that is certainly is the performances and I want to talk about Amy Adams but I'm curious how much of that is um, something that you kind of felt very primordially like kind of like while you're doing this and how much of that comes in the collaboration with Denny well he and I both were deeply moved by Close Encounters of the Third Kind. You know, that was one of the films of, of our earlier years that we, we loved so very much. Uh, and so I feel like uh, part of it comes from the need to be as authentic and honest about the world and about the characters uh, as possible so that the one buy for the audience is aliens, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And that's a huge buy. So we have to make sure that everything else feels earned and grounded and real. Uh, and then Denis just pushed that envelope further. He was a fan of process. He's a fan of, you know, paperwork and 
booster immunizations and you know radiation baths for vehicles and all these things that are great little details that he wanted here to really help immerse you in this weird world of if aliens landed what would we really do mm -hmm. and what in terms of the story and in terms of what happened to this project um, what did he really bring to this what did how did how did this kind of i mean obviously it's got a very solid foundation but how did it kind of grow as you as the two of you started collaborating on this well it it turned into a film a very artful film the screenplay is its own beast of course and it's a living document as it goes through the process but it is a transitory document you know it's a blueprint for something else it's never the final product and so for as much work as I could do on the script side I knew that it was really just there as a kind of reminder to him and to the cast and crew of what they were going to go off and make and the thing that I love about Denis is that he understood and forced himself really to understand the language of the script in the way that Louise understood the language of the heptapods. And he got into the subtext of the scenes and knew how to visually communicate that in ways that don't even touch the, the script. That's what you want. You want someone who can plus up a script, whoever it is they are, director, actor, whatnot, and, and, and leave you with an impression so that it's the, 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 it's, the sum is greater than its parts. Wait. I, you know I, what I mean. Yeah, I do. <laughs> I, my understanding is that you wrote this for Amy Adams. Um, I don't know if that's true, but if it is, um, I mean, she's great in it. So I had her in mind. I can her, tell you that much. But what was it about? Like, um, I mean, she's great in it, so it's, it's kind of easy to think about in retrospect. But what was it necessarily about her and what she brings to? I mean, she's a great actress, but there's also something about like what she brings to the screen, her persona that really felt right for Louise. Well, Amy said rare actress where when I see her in a role I feel like I know what she's thinking she's able to communicate what she's thinking yeah just in her performance mm -hmm. and it's so vital for the role of Louise we need someone who just we can see her working things out and that was the, the biggest selling point for me as uh, you know as a as a writer and producer looking for the right cast I just want to take a quick pause in the podcast uh, there's about six minutes left uh, the conversation, if you haven't seen the movie, uh, this could be considered spoilers. Also, I'm not sure it's going to make 100% sense. So just wanted to make a note here before we continue. Talk to me about the structure and in terms of how you handle the daughter story and the past and the present. I mean, one thing that it felt to me, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but that in the story, it's able to, by its nature, be a little bit more fluid, kind of, True. Kind of going back and forth. And whereas, um, because you're also building a drama with form, forward momentum, once yeah. that story starts, you don't, you can't be deviating off. So that also forced you to make some decisions in terms of separating, kind of putting some things up front, yes, and then, and then moving towards um, the reveal. Was that just a necessity, or was that also something that um, because of the story that you were telling? I think it was to make sure that we weren't cheating. And the cheat would have been introducing some time fugues, some moments between Louise and her daughter um, after the aliens arrived, but before she had much exposure to their language. Mm -hmm. Because 
so much of her experiences, her, her moments with her daughter, are all prompted by her immersion in the foreign language. That's what it is. We're just we're showing you Sabir Wharf hypothesis sort of in action. Mm -hmm. um, that were we to do that in regular intervals, the way it happens in the short story, earlier on, um, we're having them happen before she knows the language. Mm -hmm. So we had more of a logarithmic scale of the deeper she got into the movie and into the language, the more, I guess, the more often, you know, that she had those. And the book. It's interesting because the end of your, your, your film does work, but the one thing about the book is it, it is able to kind of just in its structure introduce these ideas of time yeah. being a more fluid thing, where yeah. you, by just by the nature of how you, you're telling your story, you, you kind of had to find a way to build towards that in the end, right? Is that, right. Is that, so how were you able to kind of layer that in and kind of some of those ideas and themes which comes in the big payoff? I, I would say very carefully, <laughs> and it, there was a lot of uh, trial and error with that mm -hmm. to find out where is the sweet spot, how much can we tip our hand, mm -hmm. and how much makes sense for us. Also what's going to happen to Louise at that moment, how is she going to authentically react to some of these things. And the biggest revelation I had, and this was fairly early on, um, and it could have been a horrible fight is this is not a magic trick movie. This is not a big reveal that we drop at the end and say, aha, we've held this card from you. That's, yeah, that's kind of what I'm getting at, is this isn't a Kaiser Soze thing, but you no. aren't able structurally to do some of the same things that the book was able to do. Right, so we had to present the story in a way where you can figure this out at, at just about any point, maybe from the midpoint on, and um, and let that work. And the fun is going back and watching Amy Adams' performance once you've seen the film the first time. Mm -hmm. And you'll, you'll catch things in her performance that will really like blow you away and break you down that you didn't know before. And I only have seen it once, but I am curious, and we'll, yeah. we'll end it here, I am curious about the opening. Yeah. Because that's a tricky thing. It is. It, where in the sense that, um, you know, I think my impression of watching this movie, which is I think is the one that most people have, which is that uh, I'm thinking of this in a very linear sense. Right. There's this story with the daughter. Mm -hmm. She's grieving. She goes back to work. Yep. And, you know, she hasn't aged. There's a little bit. There, there's certainly she has a dourness to her in college when she's at school. So you're kind of connecting mm -hmm. the grieving there. Um, and so I need to see it again and see that performance and see how it's layered in. But I have to imagine that was something that. I mean, it works, but I'm wondering if that was something that's just a compromise that you have to make to kind of do that, put that all up front. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that was this, those opening pages survived from draft one. That's one of, the, one of the few things that just stayed with the script for, mm -hmm. for a long time. That type of introduction just seemed to work best. Why did you think, so you like you wanted it to be that way. It wasn't out of necessity. You liked getting that up yeah. front. Why, can I ask, just I'm curious, because I, I am going to see it again and figure out, but what? But. It tells you everything you need to know about Louise mm -hmm. without being really expository. Mm -hmm. um, in the way that, say, Up does the same thing for its protagonist. Mm -hmm. And to get that information before we take you on a big alien visitation ride, helps give you context in a way that you wouldn't otherwise. And this might not be a fair, fair question, I'll end it here. Um, because you've lived this thing for so long and you've gone through, through so many iterations, Yeah. Uh, when you got to watch it and 
go all the way through. Uh-huh. Were you able to have that experience of the end that got the book, or is it just is that just impossible considering you see the seams and you see the construction? I got a different experience, and it's more like a runner's high at the end of a marathon. I had just like this huge wave of relief that this movie made it all the way. It's a movie that is so obviously we couldn't sell it in any studio. It's so hard to try and uh, share with someone else. It's one that's just best left to an experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that we made it is just a miracle. So there was a lot, there were tears of relief at the end of this film. Well, congratulations. It came together well. And it's, uh, I, we're, we're in Savannah, Georgia right now, a few weeks before. I'm trying to remember. This film comes out on, April, on no, November... November 11. November 11. Yes. So we'll be getting over our Trump hangover for two days, <laughs> and we can live through a fiction version in which, in which yes. uh, we all live. Great. Yes. Eric, thank you so much. Congratulations. Thank you, it sounds like a life project, so congratulations it getting is. it out there. <laughs>